Hello and welcome to the PSC in Conversation. I'm Katie. And I'm Antonio. And we're from the PSC, a specialist consultancy dedicated to improving UK public services. Last week, as part of our partnerships event series at the PSC, we hosted a roundtable of executives from across the NHS. We wanted to get to the bottom of three questions. Firstly, can better collaboration between trusts help us to tackle the huge backlog of elective activity post-COVID? Secondly, did COVID change ways of working and communicating across hospital trusts and how? And lastly, might it be beneficial for any of these changes to be carried on into the future? We were thrilled that the roundtable was hosted by Peter Lees, Chief Executive of the Intercollegiate UK Faculty of Medical Leadership and Management, a membership organisation with over 2,200 members. Katie caught up with Peter after the event, where he shared his thoughts on what had been discussed at the roundtable. Hello, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you on podcast. So you very kindly helped us to host a roundtable with NHS leaders talking about collaboration and partnership during COVID. Let's start with what was the mood in the room and what were the key topics that stood out to you? Yeah, thank you very much. And thank you very much for involving me. It was a great uh, event, I thought. Uh, some uh, very positive people in the room, people who'd been through uh, an awful lot. Uh, but it was a very it was a very reflective session, and I think there were some really valuable nuggets uh, that that came through in that. Uh, a from two great speakers, but actually also from a very engaged uh, audience. And I think the thing that uh, that struck me most is is that uh, a comment that one person made and other people built on is some of the basic fundamentals of human relationships that worked so well. Um, And, uh, you know, trust, uh, we all know trust is important, uh, but uh, trust was absolutely vital to people being effective. Um, It was greatly helped where people had done a lot of work around this before COVID struck, but COVID was a great catalyst to make that happen even where that hadn't happened. But organisations that had really put a lot of effort into building trust, establishing relationships uh, beforehand, and that's both within their organisations but also across organisations was incredibly important. As an aside, it's fascinating. We call these softer skills, but they're anything but. Um, And uh, to emphasise and state the glaring, the obvious, they don't happen by accident. And I think key in that issue about relationships was was a strong unity between primary and secondary care um, and a view expressed by many that the, the direction of travel into integrated care systems is absolutely the right way to go and is vital to, uh, to enhance this. Mm, definitely. So what sort of role do you think communication played in building and supporting that trust? Yeah, I mean, communication is always essential, but it was, it was writ large in this. Um, and under two, I suppose I, I, just to summarise some of the conversations, uh, external uh, and internal communications are quite a good way of looking at this. Um, I mean, people commented that they uh, found they, their essential work across what I've just would might term less traditional partners. So uh, trusts working with local authorities in the voluntary sector. Um, uh, worked really well um, during this process and again COVID brought people together to do that Um, 
of course, a challenge uh, to all uh, will be to maintain this afterwards because this isn't just essential during a pandemic and we forget that at our peril. I think something else in communication was that it led to shared learning um, and something I've picked up in a lot of it, both in this conversation, but also uh, in, in other work that I've been doing throughout the, the pandemic, is it's very reassuring for people, for organisations, uh, to know that others are facing uh, similar issues. And did the same apply to internal communications? In terms of internal communication, uh that was also vital and also very rewarding. And people described organisations feeling like one team. Um, and that's, again, something if we could maintain that, uh, that's absolutely vital. And the issue, I mean, people bandy the word around, uh, about the word culture around an awful lot. But it was, it was emphasised that uh, culture was absolutely crucial and where, again, it was easier where that had, a good working culture had been established before the example. But there were also uh, many examples of people describing how this again accelerated uh, enhancing the culture. Uh, and, and not to sound uh, too gloomy, um, but it's really important going forward that people don't forget that. Because as I said on, uh, earlier on, this is not just essential in a pandemic. This is obviously essential uh, throughout the peacetime activities as well. And I was sort of putting this into sort of two sections, really, one around workforce um, and, and and one around leadership. And, of course, they're obviously inextricably linked. Um, it was, uh, I mean, focusing on the workforce was obviously crucial. Um, and there were many examples of people describing where uh, individuals and teams and whole organisations had gone way beyond uh, the the call of duty, which is really heartening to hear that. Um, a point uh, that somebody made, which I really uh, I strongly uh, support, and that's a rewarding excellence, rewarding good work is absolutely vital. Um, and I'll just leave this question hanging in the air as to whether the NHS does this well. Um, because people like to be thanked. Not everything, not every reward has to be material. But just saying thank you to people for doing a great job is often uh, uh, enough. I, th I think there was one worrying thing that came out, and this has come out a, a lot, is that the fear that was created amongst very decent people trying to do a tricky and difficult job. Um, and clearly there was fear uh, very reasonably felt, but one also had the sense that some of this was stoked up unnecessarily. And I just hope that those who stoked up that fear unnecessarily will reflect on their actions. I'm not terribly uh, optimistic that they will. Um, but shifting back to the positive stuff, um, enormous workforce flex flexibility. Uh, and people talked about creating an agile and reactive workforce that didn't exist previously. And again, it would be lovely to see that um, uh, carrying on in into the future. Absolutely. What lessons were learned about leadership styles during COVID? What worked and what didn't? In terms of leadership, um, stating the glaringly obvious, this was the biggest leadership challenge of our times. And I think it would be very curmudgeonly not to say that the NHS responded remarkably uh, to that. Um, P 
people raise the issue that um, <clears throat> that often comes up that uh, uh, in leadership is that, uh, and this was this was writ particularly large in the anxieties and the uncertainties around COVID, uh, was a need for uh, consistency and clarity. Um, and people made the point that it was that some of the ways around that was to consistently and and clearly engage uh, with all staff and to build the bridges um, if they didn't exist before uh, to people at the front line. And I was going to say a word or two here about uh, the acronym which many people have come across VUCA. Uh, VUCA was being bandied around a lot in in in, in leadership and leadership development up uh, long before the pandemic hit, and I think actually its origins go way back to the end of the Cold War and the American military. But VUCA describes the world as volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And if anybody would like to tell me that COVID wasn't all four of those things, then I think they were on a different planet to me. Um, but there's a there's a real challenge here, one a fundamental challenge for leadership, is that a lot of people are not comfortable living with uncertainty and ambiguity, and it's often the leader's challenge, the leader's job, to give as much clarity uh, and uh, and and reduce ambiguity as much as possible. Um, and that that can be very difficult. And trying to get the balance right uh, between being untruthful uh, to give uh, reassurance where you can't give reassurance, uh, but at the other end of the spectrum to uh, basically scare the wits out of people, uh, and that's a really tricky tricky balance to strike. And I think we saw that on a daily basis, both at a national level, uh, but also at a more uh, at a more local level. And I guess something else that's uh, that's slightly on the more negative aspect is, but actually isn't entirely negative, is that there's the command and control has uh, is a term that's been bandied around a lot. Um, there are times command and control is not always bad, uh, but it can be done nicely as well as uh, as I think the reason it gets the reputation is when it's not done nicely. Um, but I think there's very good evidence in the literature that says if command and control is the only tool in your armamentarium, then you will struggle as a leader, and, and rightly so. So as well as those changed leadership styles that you mentioned, is there a sense that there's been a lot of innovation in the way that decisions are actually made? Uh, so that's a really a, a really good good question. Um, and this, this came out in a comment that somebody made about the diversity of thought in decision-making. Um, it's very easy when, uh, it, well, even when... You you're not desperately busy. It's very easy for the sort of the solitary heroic leader to make all the decisions and then to pass the decisions out to the masses. Um, this was not the time for solitary heroic leaders. And anybody who understands anything about complexity realizes you do not solve complex problems with solitary heroic leaders. So a num number of people made the point about involving staff in strategic decisions was incredibly important. And of course, it, it also brought together the the very strong clinical, uh, but also the strong professional uh, leadership knowledge, experiences, uh, and so on and so forth. And just to make a, a, a bit of a, a, a give a bit of a boost here to, to clinical leadership because people have talked talk an awful lot about clinical leadership it rolls off the tongue rather easily 
but this was clearly writ large uh, in all of this. And within that, there is uh, a real caveat for the system because having energised a lot of people, a lot of people having come to the fore, it is absolutely vital that the system doesn't send them back into their boxes and uh, and go back to the old ways. So I think there's there's a very positive message here. There's an awful lot of people realised uh, that their leadership could contribute and was invaluable at this time. Uh, let's keep doing that, please. Yeah, and that's such a good point around let's keep doing that. Looking towards the future, what changes do you expect to see in ways that the NHS organisations are run? Has COVID really changed us? Yeah, I mean, and just be, to the boat, just before that, I think it might just be a few other quick things to just to just chuck in that there were some, and, and these are almost one-liners, but one-liners that uh, are underpinned by uh, huge amounts of effort and science. But uh, people talked about mathematical modelling. Uh, I'm still surprised that mathematical modelling isn't just what everybody does routinely in the NHS because it debunks myths and it gives you... I mean, how you can capacity plan without decent mathematical modelling, I don't know. And people gave really great examples of how that had worked. Shared workforce planning uh, came through, and this workforce planning is tough enough uh, as it is. And But if we keep doing that in silos, it will be even more tough. Um, people gave great examples of sharing of information uh, across this. And actually, there are obviously issues around sharing information, but uh, it was very clear that COVID accelerated uh, that process and got rid of a lot of the barriers. And again, that must endure because uh, information following patients through the system uh, is absolutely crucial. And in mentioning that, of course, the role of technology I think there's a there's an awful lot of technology that uh, that came to the fore, um, and I've spent the last three months, like many other people, on Zoom and Teams and video conferencing. Um, so it's it's even driven somebody old like me into uh, into the 21st century. And and the last point on this this issue was um, uh, the the role of the public. And I think there were some very interesting thoughts about the use of citizens' juries, uh, but just actually how you uh, involve the public in services uh, uh, going forward. And, and so, actually, now to answer the question that you asked me is sort of looking to the forward, uh, looking to the future. I mean, there's there is so much can be said about this. Start on a negative. Um, a medical director said to me uh, within the last couple of weeks, the treacle is returning. I think we've got to be really careful about that. A lot of people have stepped up to the mark, have got engaged and got involved. And if they get deeply frustrated by unnecessary bureaucracy, then I think uh, we will have lost something very special. That's not to say that bureaucracy and governance aren't important, but they need to be there to be supporting uh, the, the, the treatment of patients and not there for their own sake. Uh, but I will now uh, uh, move into the so many positives that, that have come through this. Um, you don't need me to tell you that the NHS has actually excelled in this period. And thank goodness we have a National Health Service. And thank goodness we have the National Health Service that we have. It's done many things differently. And lots of people are telling me just how much more efficient things became during the process. We need to learn from this. 
we need to carry on with new ways of working and think about other new ways of working. We need to build on the new ways of engaging staff, uh, which have been quite exemplary. And I guess my last comment, which I would say wouldn't die, is is we must build on the great leadership we've seen throughout this hideous uh, event. Thank you very much for joining us, Peter. This was a fascinating interview. And thank you very much for involving me. I've I've learned a lot, uh, as well as having enjoyed it enormously. That was such a fascinating insight into the mindset of leaders across the NHS. And it's excellent to hear how much has already been learned from the COVID response. Yes, but Peter raises a good point about the treacle returning, so to speak, as the old ways of doing things are already creeping back in. Fingers crossed they'll be able to maintain those stronger pathways of communication across NHS organisations, as well as the more inclusive and diverse decision-making that Peter described. Agreed. There'll be a lot of work to make sure that we really do maintain this more collaborative and inclusive approach to leadership, as well as communication going forwards. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can learn more about what we do at thepsc.co.uk. And email us with any questions, comments or suggestions at hello at thepsc.co.uk. Thank you again to Peter and thank you to everyone for listening to this podcast.